Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. In this episode, I welcome Mayur Mystery. Mayur is a recent graduate of the Architectural Graduate Program at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and has recently taken a position as a design technologist at Perkins & Will, working with the Digital I.O. team. But that's not all. He also has a degree in civil engineering, and he's 1,000% enthusiastic about design technologies and all things cutting-edge tech, buzzwords and all. Mayur has an active YouTube channel called Engineering Architecture, where he discusses all of his favorite tech topics along with guests, both inside and outside architectural technology, and is active on Twitter and LinkedIn. I've linked to all of these in the show notes for the episode, and you can find them either in your podcast player app of choice or on the episode page at trxl.co slash podcast. I had Mayur on the show to get his newly minted professional perspective, which is a bit different than the typical guests I have on the show that have been doing this for a while. I asked him questions like, what do architectural technologists think of the industry that they are coming into? What are they excited about? And what can we as incumbents do to help make them more successful? So without further ado, I bring you Mayur Mystery. Mayur, welcome to the show. It's great to see you and, and have you here. Thanks, Ivan. I am very excited. Yeah, this is going to be fantastic. You, you're you popping up all over the place. You, I see you on, on the Hypar Discord. I see you on Twitter. I see you on YouTube. You're talking about all things technology, not necessarily just technology that's inside AEC, right? You're interested in all kinds of things, NFTs, blockchain, I mean, you name it, you're, you're talking about it on your YouTube channel. And we'll put a link to that at, in the show notes so people can check you out. But maybe you can introduce yourself, give us a little bit of background on where you're coming from, because you're, you're a different kind of guest than is normally on the show. And I'm really excited to talk to you. Sure. So I did my bachelor's in civil engineering at IIT Bombay in India. Then I worked as a structural engineer in 2018, I was it, it was the first time I was exposed to Grasshopper. And I recall one interesting uh, incident where my manager told me that, may you remember, days will come where Excel will be replaced by Grasshopper. And I still remember that. Mm-hmm. Then I, I saw the, the gap between architecture and engineering, and I had the creative side of me. So I came to US for my master's in architecture. Then last summer, I I participated in a workshop called Digital Futures, where I was first exposed to AI. And then the whole year, I went all in and did like all the AI and computer science courses to uh, get more knowledgeable in that area. And meanwhile, I also started my YouTube channel to share knowledge and share the process of learning as well as interviewing great people. That's fantastic. I love it that you said you're sharing the process of learning because that to me is, that's exactly what you're doing. It's like, I don't claim to be an expert. This is what's really interesting to me. And this is where I could see things going. Do you, is that kind of where you're coming from with your YouTube? Yeah. And honestly, like with a lot of the new technologies I talk about on my channel, I'm also speculating along with, okay, this might have interesting or valuable use case in our industry. We should try it. Yeah, I think that that's that's a big point because uh, there's there's definitely a mentality out there which is project, 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 right? This is the project I have right now, and it's hard to step back and take a bigger view of what's going on in the profession, where could it go, what else is happening adjacent to AEC that could influence where things go and why. And those are typically the people that are on this show. They're the people who are the ones stepping back and seeing that. But I think the majority of the profession is is full of people who are very concerned about the thing that is on the plate, on their plate right now. So I can see how, you know, I think you're, you're a little bit of a different breed when it comes to somebody who's what I would call like a newly minted, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. you know, like we're, there's, there's, there's definitely this aspect of, 
of this emerging professional to you and to what you're presenting and the things that you're excited about. I think that's what I appreciate the most is that you're bringing an excitement about those topics to this profession. Are, are you running up against barriers or acceptance or somewhere in between on on this kind of attitude and this outlook and what you are bringing to the table? Tell, tell me about your experience with that, what you're, what you're seeing happening as you bring these attitudes and points of view to a profession that's been around for a really long time. Sure. Yeah. So I could see like a big gap between academia and profession. And many times uh, in academia, when the research work is being speculated that this could make the life of architects easy. And when you see the profession and how it works, it's a different problem which they are facing. And it's not like the assumptions which academia had might is a bit different than what the profession is working on. So I feel like there's a very useful uh, learning where if architects could learn about user experience, problem statement, and like how to identify the right problem to solve, especially I'm talking on the behalf of computational designers and technologists, because we everyone like is pushing hard to develop computational design tools and staying and at the edge, but it's uh, taking a step back, as you said earlier, and identifying what's the right problem and addressing that is, I feel, is quite important. Yeah, that, that's interesting way to think about it. I, the way that I was thinking about it earlier today was was based on a, a, a blog post that I read, and it was talking about instead of prioritizing things as high priority, medium priority, low priority, it talked about prioritizing things based on what's obvious, what is essential, and what is possible. And those are very different ways to look at, you know, maybe, and and to find the appropriate place to put things. So, and the reason I bring that up is because I think that's where experience comes in. Experience comes in from differentiating between the priority of when it comes to an architectural project what's obvious, what's essential, and what is possible. The list of what's possible is enormous, right? It's hu- it's huge. And and trying to kind of give the client more than what they're asking for, but also like deliver on the actual things that they are asking for is a balance that has to be achieved and that comes through having done something like it before. I don't want to say having done it before, but it's because every project is quite different for the most part, right? I'm generalizing. But I think that there that is there's a, a level of experience that comes into play there that is kind of intangible. This is not something that is necessarily something that can be learned during the period of academia, right? Which is a very short period in the grand scheme of things. So I'm wondering, like when you you know, you, you mentioned people are are trying to explorers they're trying to like put their stake in the ground and claim like these kind of computational design scripts and author authoring tools that can be helpful and useful and at the same time those are typically again generalizing the people who do not have that experience and so there needs to be kind of a a marriage of i don't know mentor to mentee or you know, apprentice to master, and and not not to necessarily like I I think those are bidirectional, right? They're they're bidirectional relationships where the mentee can also be the mentor, and the mentor can also be the mentee at different times within the relationship. But as you kind of are emerging into this field, I think it becomes clear at some point that there is a lot of stuff that we just don't know, and we won't know it until we do it over and over and over again, and kind of hone and sharpen the axe over a long period of time because these projects take a long time. And like one thing uh, which is uh, I'm noticing and which might change the way things were used to before where let's say if I want to develop a floor design software, Mm -hmm. there's a young architect who is good at technology and there are senior folks who had like hard-coded intelligence about that design tool. In order to for that tool to be the best, we need like that kind of collaboration. But with AI, the things are different. I could feed the thousand best plans 
floor plans and it could become like a floor plan generator tool. And that's where even like a part of domain expertise need is being eliminated. And even general public can become who are interested in exploring architecture can use those tools. So I think it's interesting to think about it that way because the floor plan actually is that knowledge encoded at some level. It's not 100%. Like you don't know the reasons behind the decisions necessarily. You just know what the decision ultimately was, which is what you know, a building information model is or it's what a set of plan is. It's an encoded set of decisions that have been made in that instant. Doesn't mean they're the best thing 5 years from now. It doesn't mean they're the best thing for a different entity organization on a different site like there's a lot of variables in there as well but it is kind of interesting to think of these plans as a way to train a system based on some set of documented decisions i'm interested to hear more about the the work that you've been doing with ai so maybe let's just jump into that right now since we're here and and talk about kind of where you started and and what you've learned along that journey since the Designing Futures Symposium? After that symposium uh, last year, I I made a GAN, gener- a Generative Adversarial Network, where the way it works, I'll explain simply, uh, you feed the data. It, it trains from the given data set of images, let's say 1,000 flow plan images, and then it learns the relationship between uh, the rooms in that training. And then once the model is trained, I can do interpolation and it can make different flow plans. So real quick, I want to I want to pause for right there. So when you say it's reading the plans, I would love to know just a little bit more about what it's reading. Is it reading size and area ratios? Is it reading names? Is it reading all of the above? Is it reading adjacencies to a space next to it? I'll just give us an idea about what a GAN is actually looking at during that process. Yeah, sure. So there are also like different variations of GAN. So if there's style GAN model where you just feed uh, images like black and white pixels, mm-hmm. and it learns that there are like a pix-to-pix model where you could have flow plan, but with different color tagging, color tagging, let's say bedroom is pink color, living room is orange color. And then you could do mapping. So there's famous pix-to-pix model where there was one model trained on horse, one model trained on zebra, and then you you could directly do mapping using that. So interesting. And there are like other vector-based model as well where you could encode list of uh, vertices, and that it can train to predict the next room layout. Interesting. So I want to I want to ask this question because I think this will be something on a lot of people's mind, which is a plan is one single slice representational of like we talked about a minute ago, a bunch of decisions, but it's not 3D. It's not sectional. There's no sectional quality to it. It's probably not taking into account environmental issues that the building is addressing on its exterior context. So there's a lot of other stuff going on here. So I I get that we got to start somewhere, right? I think that's what we're saying is like, this is, this is a thing that is starting somewhere kind of at the lowest common denominator, which is where I started. My interest as an architect was in the grocery store looking at magazines full of floor plans, right? <laughs> like I loved that. I, those were the, ma- like everybody's looking at the BMX magazines. They're looking at the car. Ma- I'm looking at like floor plans. So just to give you an idea, like, I think it's interesting that that that's what the computer is looking at now too because even back then I had no concept of like there was one perspective drawing of a house but I otherwise I'm just looking at a floor plan of a house I'm not looking at the sectional quality I'm not looking at the quality of the space it's it's more quantitative yep three bedrooms two baths a living room and a dining room and a kitchen and a garage and I like the layout because it's an open plan versus, you know, what, whatever private is in the back, public is in the front. You start to put those things together as a, as a person who's interested in these. But it sounds like that's kind of where this is starting as well. It's, it's at the, this lowest common denominator level. And, of course, it will get more and more complex over time. But we're not, we're not even close to that kind of analysis yet. Because I think eventually you would see models, 3D models, which do have those qualities. And it does take the environmental stuff into account over time to 
kind of elaborate upon this very early system. Yeah, and also like people are have done uh, machine learning models on 3D mesh, but the problem is so complex. So imagine you have like 256 by 256 images mm-hmm. and like each pixel has like value from zero to 255. Right. So if you see that problem of those 256 by 256 into any value from zero to 255, it's a very complex problem. It's a lot of value. And yeah. was, a lot of levels there. <laughs> yeah. And also the machine is learning depending what kind of data you feed. So if you have like a just flow plan of modernist buildings, it's learning that style versus if you have a mixture of uh, data of different uh, flow plans of all styles. So it's it's the human rule of like what I want machine to learn and how you curate that data well is also important. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so like, like they say, garbage in is garbage out. So if you're trying to feed it a huge range of things, you're not going to get necessarily a, a starting point that you're even that is useful, right? I guess, and that's kind of the point with this, right? Is to get to a starting point that could be useful a lot faster, or at least give you ideas a lot faster than you can turn them out yourself. Yeah. So one thing I would like to highlight is there are also companies like OpenAI, Hugging Face, who has like trained their model on like four million or billion images and they have been able to produce models which are good at generalizing characteristics so one of the experiment i did a couple of months ago was you could generate an image just from a list of words just a text and that itself is like a whole another magic if you feel like if i say someone draw draw a dream it might be challenging for humans but the machine could do it if i oh. say okay draw it, it'll house. try yeah it has to <laughs> it's a command it's not a it's not a they're not just asking you to think about it it's like an actual command so it, it does it right just to whatever ex- extent that it can mm-hmm. interesting but that's another level of like abstraction i am observing that so we do precedent study in our design and the way we learn from it and translate it and apply it to our design statement and the way machine learns those abstraction from the list of data set and then generate design. There's uh, another level of human machine creativity, which could be explored. Interesting. Okay, so so back to kind of where we started and you're coming into a profession as a newly minted graduate and you're pursuing architecture, you're working at Perkins & Will. And I'm just wondering, I know Perkins Will has an amazing digital department. I, I kind of assume you're part of that digital department, the technology department. But it's it's a big firm. There's a lot of people. And I'm just wondering what your experience has been. And maybe this is not necessarily directed at your exact experience at Perkins and Will, but let's let's generalize a little bit and say, how have you been received with these kinds of thoughts and this kind of pursuit? I mean, it sounds like they hired you because of this kind of expertise that you're bringing or that you're willing to be an explorer in it. Because that, to me, really seems like one of the key aspects for this to be successful on any level is acceptance and this kind of removal of roadblocks for you to be able to take this where it needs to go, right? Which is, I think, what a, a, man, a really good manager's actual job is, is to remove those roadblocks and see where you can take this. So how's that reception been? I, I'm very fortunate to work in the group. So my group is a digital IO group, and it's a, bit, uh, it's a software development group in our company. And there is digital practice group, which is more focused on uh, computational developments. And I would like to share one incident. So the flexibility and opportunities they are allowing the uh, the new joinees are great. So uh, in during my internship there, I worked on an iOS app we could which could do like asset tracking using machine learning. Where let's say you go to a hospital, there are different assets. It could track it, give it to the database, and also. Uh, there was one time I remember I proposed, so if we have a better machine learning model, we need to do an iOS app update. Why can't uh, we 
adopt an approach where we deploy machine learning model on the cloud and you don't need to do app update and you can just do allow it. So it, it requires a lot of work. And my senior was like, yeah, that sounds a better solution. Let's do it. So they are very like supportive if th something is good and better, like even if it takes more time and work, we should do it. And my job, my job description is digital innovation technology. So I, part of my work is like testing out uh, new ideas, finding technologies that can provide valuable use case in, in the industry. So I have been recently experimenting with uh, blockchain neurotech devices and finding ways we could improve the design workflow. Interesting. I think that there's um, there's a couple different ways that I see this play out in our profession, which is the acceptance that you're talking about, but there's also the fear that uh, of a couple things. Number one is that this is not the architecture that I know, and I don't necessarily like the idea of this becoming the future of architecture. So there's some blockades happening there from certain individuals. But there's also the, you're going down such a different path with technology and potential of, of how this applies back to architecture at some point that that's kind of a scary subject as well. Have you noticed or felt that in the profession, like as a, again, kind of coming into it fresh, do you see these range of perspectives or tell me what your experience has been so far? Sure. So uh, one, one thing which I try to do most of the time when I visit offices, talk to as many people with different roles because everyone has like different way of working, the tools they use, the design approach they have. And I'm currently mapping out like the clusters where what's the right areas to develop a tool. What are like, I may be developing a neuroscience tool which could draw with a thought, but do they really require, if they are just happy with sketching, they don't need another tool. If they don't need AI for multiple creations, if they are satisfied with their work. So that's one uh, thing I'm currently focusing on. Like, that's uh, as, as I mentioned in the beginning. This like, kind of goes back to that: what what's possible versus what what's useful. Yeah, yeah, I could totally see that because yeah, you're talking about you. The, there's potential in so many different areas, but how do you make the right tool to accomplish the goals of the business, the 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 project teams themselves, etc. Yeah, and like, let's say like uh, I see a lot of developments in generative design area, but let's say they like making massing and they hate doing uh, door schedule or detailing. Like what is the right problem to develop right. a tool? Right. Yeah. Interesting. And then there's the actual architecture side of it, which is detailing the building for waterproofing and the, the envelope. Are you interested in that side of the business as well? Or are you more interested in this front end kind of tool making side of the business or, or tell, tell me what you're, what your game plan is there from a, a newly graduated professional's perspective? Yeah, like one of my interest is uh, using BIM data intelligence and machine learning. So uh, as, as we mentioned earlier about a lot of decision making happens uh, during the whole design process. So I, I want to leverage the past building data and whenever like, there are decision making like, okay, if we make this wall or if we make this room size bigger, that would be like a prompt that, okay, these are the implications you will face along the way. So we could uh, make uh, better decisions. And the one thing which I, I really feel like many times the people who get experience, uh, they, do, they do decision making based on the lessons learned from the past project. So, but there are new designers as well, and they can't like learn by doing mistakes. Like, obviously they can learn, but there are also implications on the cost level or there might be bigger implications. So can an AI become an assistant where we can leverage the people's past intelligence and make a auto correct tool mm -hmm. as we have in keyboard, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I this this I'll go back uh, down memory lane once more time. It, it makes me think of the choose your own adventure books that I read when I was a kid, where you'd get to a point in the story and you had to make a decision, and it would say, "If you choose this, you know, turn to page forty-two. If you choose this, turn back to page thirteen. Right? And it was 
this really kind of multi-threaded or just multi-option approach to storytelling. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, which is, and I've had this exact conversation with Scott Reynolds at Upcodes, where number one, they're exposing the the building code to a lot more people. They're democratizing access to the building code. But it also makes you now think that there's better ways to access the building code. And whereas before, it's kind of left up to the professional, which is usually a very small subset of architects in an office. You know, it's the project architect. It's somebody who's very technical in nature, who studies the code on every project. And they're usually a specialist who applies their specialized knowledge during the detailing phase of concept to reality, right? Like they're the ones who are in charge of taking those design ideas and those and, and making them so that they're buildable on the site. And now with tools like Upcodes, and I think like with the tools that you're talking about here, when it gets to a point and it says, okay, well, since you decided that, now where do we go? And it gives you a couple of options that says, okay, well, if you're going to do type four construction type, right? Like that forces you to decide now this or this or this, or and at least it doesn't, it's not even necessarily making a recommendation, right? Like Netflix is saying, here's what you should watch next. It's actually saying, here is a totally open-ended question. Which direction do you want to go? Because that's going to lead down a different tree of responses and decisions that you're going to have to make. I think that that's really an interesting way to think about it because it it makes it so that like you don't have to know where to go next in the code. It's going to kind of lead you there with a tool like Upcodes has the potential to do. Is that is that what you're talking about with this kind of thing? Yeah, like it it curates your way, but also uh, like there is some objective parameter where you know, okay, this I feel that okay, this is let's say cool form and it's gonna attract more marketing or mm. it's gonna mm-hmm. like you're gonna pay more on sustainability and a lot of engineering costs so trade-offs are you sure you wanna yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah weigh the trade-offs yeah. <laughs> interesting yeah I, I think uh that it sounds really interesting is like because i don't think that those all of those uh input parameters are on everybody's mind at each step of the way those those trade-offs aren't necessarily apparent when somebody's making a decision, but it is affecting those trade-offs, whether they're apparent or not. So when you talk about form versus sustainability versus cost, or, you know, there's so many potential kind of pieces tugging at this problem for, uh, for you know, where the outcome is going to end up, it's a, it's a big tug of war. And that's kind of the designer slash project team's job is to navigate that path, which is very it's just all over the place. It's really interesting. So if there's tools that can actually help prompt you along the way, I think that there's some huge potential there. Sure. And it's it's difficult to get like expertise in all these different domains in one lifetime. And you you don't have every stakeholder every mm. moment in while the in design decision making. So to me that's the promise of of encoding this type of expertise. At least it makes it more approachable by more people and i think i think the hard part is convincing our profession that we actually need more of those people but the building industry is enormous and it has so much potential to affect the lives of the of everybody on the planet globally and capital a architecture serves a very small small piece of that pie so there's definitely room for that and and i think that part of it is just being okay our our profession being okay with that and still being able to fall back onto our actual value proposition, which is is to bring meaningful space to people. And that doesn't mean every project needs to be unique to be meaningful. It means that all projects need to be meaningful. And so if we could spend more time making decisions that affect people's day-to-day lives in a meaningful way, I think that architects in general would have a lot more value within our, within our societies. In our communities also like the meaning and impact is changing a lot what uh, we used to have 50 years ago versus now like currently your attention is divided between like physical space and digital space mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. also like you could create curate the digital space where let's say you could 
use IoT sensors, how like the temperature, music, lighting intensity can change as per the user experience. So even architects have much uh, bigger role in that area as well. If they choose, if they choose to get into that, I, th- I think there's a. It's kind of easy to ignore that stuff because it adds a- additional layers of complexity that they're not necessarily ready to deal with <laughs> either. <laughs> but but the potential is there. You're absolutely right. I did a podcast with Violet Whitney. She works with the with a team at Google on that exact thing and teaches a class on that and it, at at Columbia. And it's it's very interesting the levels of interactability that. I don't think that's the right word, but you know, the levels of interaction that people can play with architecture now because of things like IoT and the various sensors and whether they're whether they're touching or getting in front of something on purpose or if it's just reading the room. These sensors are just reading the environment and what's happening in it, you know, from a you know, occupancy strategy or from an environmental strategy. There's so many different ways that can happen. Those are additional layers of complexity that that yeah, some would embrace, but some would also be like, oh, I, I just prefer not to know about any of that, and they just have have kind of blinders to it. Yeah, yeah. interesting. And so, and that is also reflecting in how the young architects are moving. So a lot of people I see who got hardcore into programming or coding are doing like, uh, let's say, a creative engineer at TikTok or mm-hmm. that that. The problem solving and multidisciplinary aspect people are using it uh, as an architect in other industries, and that's also useful. Yeah, I think to the to the dismay of architecture, right? <laughs> but maybe I mean maybe it's all moving forward together. But but I do think that you know I, I guess I could point at myself too for for moving outside of architecture proper into technology for architects. Those are seen as kind of two disparate camps those are definitely and and so i think architecture does need these but it also needs to be able to attract these people there's a there's a lot of leadership out there that you look at them and you're like that's not attractive like i don't want to i don't necessarily want to sign up for that from for the rest of my life whereas this other thing seems like it fits me better are you seeing are you you say you're seeing that a lot with the with the graduates coming out of school right now they're looking uh, at adjacent, adjacent or maybe even non-adjacent uh, career paths. There are particular schools uh, who has more trend. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm interested to hear what your visions are for the future. Like, where do you see this going with the path that you're on in architecture specifically? You started in civil engineering. You went into structural engineering. Now you're in architecture, but you're in a pretty small piece of architecture, right? You're in the technologist side of architecture. Um, where, where do you see this building to or, or going in the future? That's a challenging question. So because and, and like, you don't need to know the answer. I'm just interested to hear like what you've thought about it so far. Like, cause I'm not going to hold you to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, like the way I like, I get adrenaline rush when I explore new technology and find it, deconstructing it and finding valuable use cases in architecture. So if you ask me six months ago, I would have said, I'm going to be like a creative coder in architecture. Now, if you ask me, I'm also uh, interested in blockchain aspects and develop using those business model or service model in architecture or creating metaverses. So uh, I, I, I can say my vision for next six months would be uh, focusing a bit more on like using uh, developing a data pipeline because uh, one challenge I, I see is a lot of AEC data is unorganized or messy. It's not open source. So I'm focusing some efforts in that direction and uh, more learning more software development because I I can say 10 different ideas, but if I can't, prototype it and showcase it, I can't uh, have the same impact that I could have. So uh, developing those skills. And also with my YouTube channel, I'm like curating guests with different expertise. So I'm hoping that uh, we can create a community where people can collaborate together, maybe a hackathon and develop prototypes. And all those people are 
interested in like pushing the boundary and develop uh, things which can be really value valuable to the community. So it seems like there's a lot of communities trying to be developed kind of in parallel, but not one big one, right? It's it's still kind of very siloed within the profession. So we see different communities on Discord, we see Slack communities, we see YouTube communities, we see podcast communities, we see hackathon communities and conference communities. And and of course, there's people who do all of the above, and they're the same people, and then there's some people who just kind of drop in and drop out to, to little ones. What's your sense of the overall AEC community when it pertains to technology? Do you feel like it's it's strong? Do you feel like it's going in the same direction? Or do you feel like it's pulling in a bunch of different directions? So fortunately, I'm involved in like uh, many different communities and I see like a good uh, direction, like good output in all. So I, I would for sure mention about digital futures, mm-hmm. which is like now created a whole another platform where for free education from the experts free workshops, free lectures. So you're learning fr- from all o- all the people all over the world. Last so, time I checked on Digital Futures, you had to apply to to be to have access. Is that still the case? No. So okay. since since last two years, like all the workshops, everything is like live streamed and online for free. Great. So that's a that's an output of COVID right there. <laughs> I think I think it was before COVID where you had to apply and it was pretty selective. Like they wanted to see a portfolio of work for you to go to a to access to a class. So you're saying now that's it's not the case anymore. That's great to hear. Yeah, and if you see and compile at least six seven different workshops, I can think of you could do like masters in digital or computational design just by learning from those workshops. So it's so much. It's a master class. Good, yeah, yeah. So excellent. So. Educational accessibility is uh, one uh, good future we are moving towards. And there are like amazing uh, open source startups I see, which like Speckle, IFCJS, which has their own community, which is pushing the boundary. And like that's very active and people are very supportive. That's one thing which I really like that if you ask any questions in this community, like everyone is uh, helping each other out, even though they know the industry is complex, but AC Tech is a small community in that sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean that's great. That's great to hear. I, I'll definitely put links to all of those in the show notes and to your YouTube channel as well. I, I want to ask you, how can the profession enable you better now? From a again, from somebody just entering it in, and I don't know if you've come up against the same roadblocks that everybody else has, or if. If if you you're feeling incredibly fortunate and you, because you haven't, but maybe there is a way that people can help you and people like you, and maybe you can kind of do a public service announcement right now about how existing leadership in the profession can enable this kind of excitement and authenticity about like where you really feel like things are going to toward the future to to help you get there faster. Things that come to my mind is being open and adapt to try out new technology and solutions. Like if things are working in in one particular way, uh, maybe like giving it a try with new technology for a couple of times, if uh, that is better, more productive, or it's more valuable. So being open-minded in that direction. And there are people who are very interested in technology but they sometimes they don't get resources or platform to uh, raise their voice or experiment or do research. So maybe like having some flexibility or provide them resources so that they excel in what they believe in their vision mm-hmm. would push. And yeah. I think it's important to recognize that there is room for all of these different avenues for careers within architecture, and it doesn't just fall into kind of the three traditional categories of project management, technical, and design, right? There's so many more career paths possible now than there ever have been before. And and those are totally viable and, and totally okay. Yeah, like, so, like, one thing I totally foresee, like, a lot of people, like, not a lot, a, a decent amount of people are really interested in, like, user research, understanding the user of the building better. They could just collaborate with 
like UI UX designer or web developer and create a website where people or the community can share feedback and that could be an interactive design development co co-creation so it's possible it's just like uh, maybe you pair up the right talent or find develop that uh, R&D community or tech uh, experimental community in your firm yeah, I feel like it kind of takes it, it needs it from two directions. It needs it from the grassroots level, which is kind of what you're talking about, where somebody has some ideas about what's possible and they could reach out to somebody who is hopefully the early adopter mindset who's willing to give room for those kinds of tools to be developed or to see if they have legs. But you also need the top down leadership that says we have to do this to survive. Let's throw the spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks kind of a mentality, right? Which is like, if, cause if you don't, if, if you're too surgical about it, like the chances of those things actually moving forward, like it's an experiment, right? You've experiments fail mm-hmm. and yeah. we should learn from those and move on. But at the same time, like you kind of have to try a lot of different things to see what works and what sticks to, to take it to the next level and then to really invest in it, right? Because it takes very little investment to capitalize on your initiative, that your intrinsic motivation, all I have to do is say, go, and you'll do it. And you're cheap. You're a, you're a young graduate. Like compared to all the principals in the firm, you're extremely cheap. So that it's, it's welcome. And at the same time, like that leadership is lacking in a lot of places because they can't see the forest through the trees. It's like you see this avalanche coming of data-driven design and the way the clients are going to demand that you back up your decisions with with data and you show how it's going to work before it's a real building. There's all of that pressure that is only building from the owner side of the equation. And so if if you have people in the in the company who are willing to do that, let them do it. <laughs> help them do it not just let them do it help them do it and that's why i asked the question like what can architecture do for you guys now to really help help make that possible and i know it's a lot of its mindset right it's just like being being open minded like you said but it's a it's, it is a key call to action for leader for existing leadership yeah one thing i feel like as a young uh, technologist is also the way we we make them feel the potential of that technology. I can say AI is going to change the design. Yeah. You, you're not going to use it right now. But if I show you, if I sit with you 30 minutes, okay, these are different algorithms. This is how you can integrate in your presentation or design development. Then that feeling stays for a long while and then it triggers them. Okay, maybe we should give it a try. So, and, and there shouldn't I, be they shouldn't be foreign to that process because that is the design process with any client already, right? And... and I mean, there's a lot of people who just think you should jump immediately to the answer, but that's not how it works, right? That's not how design works, and that's not how development works, software development. That's not how tool development works. It's a it's a, a choose-your-own-adventure. To go back to our earlier analogy, it's we figure it out as we go, and through that pr- that process of learning, we make decisions that are encoded to us as, a, as, an, as an organization, yeah. I was about to say every firm has their own encoded intelligence, so right. it's a discovery. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's uh, definitely true, and it doesn't mean that it needs to like you. You talked about earlier about the open source community, right? It doesn't mean it needs to stay there, and and my hope is that it won't. My hope is that it will get outside and be useful to our profession at large. And like the high part team, want, you know, I don't know if they still talk about this, but they used to talk about you being able to, as a company, charge for people to then run that function. And you could use that as a, another source of revenue for your company. Th- that'd be great, right? At least they don't have to redevelop the tool and they can pay a small amount to run it as many times as they want. I think that that is just as fantastic of an option as giving it away for free. Um, because I don't, what we don't want is a bunch of garbage out there that we don't know if it works or if it does, or we don't want a bunch of stuff that's unproven. I would rather run the Perkins and Will emergency room generator than the one from the guy on the grasshopper forum. So I think that there is kind of a name recognition, expertise recognition that goes along with this kind of thing. But to get it outside of your silo is a huge part of that open source community mentality 
so that everybody in our profession can move forward together instead of just us. This is ours. We're going to keep it for ourselves and we're going to use it once every five years and it's not really going to be valuable except for that once every five years. You can make it valuable to everybody today and our whole profession gets elevated because of that. Yeah. And I see like I take inspirations from open source community, like from computer science and also like influencer community. Like I, I follow Gary V and he shares most of his content for to the public for free. Right. And he's not worried. He's like he's like a chef. He's Gary V is giving away his recipes because the more that if you actually use them, he thinks that every you're going to be more successful and he wants more people to be more successful. I mean, I, I assume that's what you're talking about. Yeah. And the way uh, the business model he's working is like he charges for the appointment, which is like way more higher than the regular content service. So yeah. I'm, I'm very bullish on like some business model, like as you mentioned that maybe companies can start for charging for the Grasshopper script because why should one reinvent the whole Grasshopper script if they solve the complex building problem and every firm is doing their own Grasshopper, grasshopper script. So Yeah, just reinventing the wheel over and over. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But but then you establish yourself as that expert and then when you when somebody really needs you to connect that dot to all the other dots that's a huge opportunity for business development right there. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let, let's finish up with, uh, with a segment here. Like, tell us the things that you're talking about on your YouTube channel that you're excited about that are happening. And so, you know, a lot of these are, are ideas. A lot of these are vaporware, but a lot of these things are really important. They're going to be proving to be very important in the near future. So, Give us give us kind of a rundown of the types of technologies and stuff you're interested in. Sure. So like six months ago, I started like making small, small videos about cutting edge AI research uh, in computer vision industry and other where using just a one photo, you could create a 3D model of yourself or using one sketch. You It could identify the room boundary and Although uh, like those technologies were in research phase, like coming couple of months or years down the line, it could be at a bigger mass production level. So the intent with those type of videos is like it's happening. You could mm-hmm. see it mm-hmm. and start thinking broadly about how, what are the ways you could integrate it in the design workflow. Then I did some uh, interviews with AI artists and recently, today itself, I did one interview with another AI artist about multimodal AI, future of AI and creativity. And like uh, he was sharing examples how using GPT-3, you could write a movie script, you can write a poem. So that that industry, like using that example, we could see like maybe you can write a whole architectural project description using AI. Is it better? Can it help in like co-creation? Uh, second topic which uh, I'm currently looking more was blockchain development meta- metaverses can uh, and I, I saw this like Zaha did like collaborated with PUBG to design virtual uh, world and I was in one uh, company meeting for Decentraland which is like blockchain based and a New York art collector made a digital twin of his apartment in Decentraland and paid uh, a 3D artist to do that. Then I was wondering, we already have those digital twin models. And if art collectors are having this need in those metaverses, why can't we think about building metaverses and leveraging our 3D model? Because there's some need about it. I've thought about the same thing. And I think uh, it's interesting to think about it from the perspective of being trained as an architect. And designing for the digital world, very different than designing. I mean, you, you saw it in school all the time, right? You would see digital models that would break the rules of gravity and cantilevers and structure and physics and all the time, right? But that would fit perfectly into Decentraland, right? It doesn't have to follow the rules that we have in the physical world. And as the boundary is dissolved between 
time spent in the physical world versus the digital world, or you know, at the integration, I shouldn't necessarily say versus. I mean, they're they're converging, and so why should we be satisfied with replicas of the physical world in the digital world? And and we start to see ideas about this in movies more than anywhere, right? In in fantastic. You know, like the Avengers, you know, idea of what what does a city look like on another planet? And you really see, you know, goes back to Star Wars. It goes back farther than that. But you see these kind of designs, these concepts that aren't based on the same rules of the same world that we live in. And there's huge opportunity there for architects in particular. Yeah, and I see like it's a different medium. Like you have some visionary idea, you translate it into a paper. Out of 10 ideas, let's say one gets built, but there might be few other client, not in real space, but in virtual world where those nine ideas, they might like it. So, Right. right. <laughs> Food for thought, for sure. I, I think that there's some, there are definitely some, some stuff to be explored. That'd be fantastic. Well, thanks for hanging out and spending time. This was a fun conversation and I love getting a perspective that's different than what we've got on this show so far. And it's, I love, I love your excitement. I love how fresh this is and I hope that you never lose that. I mean, that's truly my hope. And so if there's anything that I can do to help, of course, reach out, but um, I'm looking forward to see where you go within this profession, within your career and wherever that is, you know, uh, I, I'm excited to watch from the from the sidelines and be as involved as I can be over the time that we have. But thank you. I, I must admit that I have I'm a fan of your show. You have like amazing uh, technologist on your podcast, and thanks a lot for providing me this platform to share my work and thoughts. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Meyer. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.